Well, if you keep your Bibles handy there in James 4, we continue uh, through the study of this book. And just a reminder, just a little summary, James is writing to believers who are under pressure. They're experiencing external trials. They've been scattered because of persecution. They are facing economic deprivation. They are probably suffering for their faith in a host of other ways. And in the midst of those external trials, the temptation for them to be lured away from following Jesus is great. James says all this in James 1. And James basically has a three-part sermon. And he says this, in order to stand up under trials and to, withstand the, and to withstand the lure of temptation in the midst of those external pressures, you need to be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. James 1, 19 and 20, which is an outline of the book. To be quick to hear means you're quick to obey. If you cut corners in obedience to Christ under pressure, you will only make things that much more worse. We also need to be slow to speak. That's James chapter 3. We're really tempted to sin and be destructive in what we say, particularly when we're under pressure. And now James has been in James 4 and into the first six verses of James 5. James is talking about what does it mean to be slow to anger. We are all prone to get angry in the midst of external pressures and the lure to sin. Anger can be a real issue for us. Now last week we looked at anger. The causes of anger are disordered desires. We want things and we desire things and those things might not even be wrong. But if we want them too much... In other words, if God's kingdom and his will and plans aren't at the top of our desires in our heart, our heart is disordered, and when we don't get those desires fulfilled, we get angry. And the remedy for that is humility. Learning to submit to God, learning to draw near to God, learning to, to let our hearts be captivated by God's priorities, God's kingdom. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And then to learn to confess when our disordered desires have now are at the source of our anger. And so humility, confession, repentance is part of the way we deal with anger. In this section, we are continuing with the same thing, same theme, be slow to anger. And what I think James does is gives us three separate scenes, pictures of anger. And I want us to see those three scenes. I want to make sure we understand what James is not saying, because I think you could easily misunderstand each of these scenes. And then I want to try to help us understand what James is driving at in these three scenes of anger, and then make sure we understand the tie-in to humility being the way forward, the antidote to the anger, to the heart of anger that we all deal with. So let's look at scene number one. This is in James 4, 11, and 12. And in this scene, what James is saying is, it is wrong for us to speak negatively about your fellow brothers who are followers of Jesus. It's wrong to speak negatively of your brothers and sisters in Christ to other people. Notice what it says in verse 11. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. He goes on to say at the end of verse 12, but who are you to judge your neighbor? 
Now, what this does not mean, and I just want to clarify, we're told in Galatians 6.1, if someone is struggling with a sin, it says, ye who are spiritual should gently understanding and humility that we could fall into the same sin. We're supposed to go and confront them, to talk to them, to speak to them about their sin. This verse, is, when it says, who are you to judge your neighbor? It's not saying that you can never go to a fellow brother or sister in Christ and ask them some questions about behavior that you're concerned with. The reality is this should probably be, this should happen more often than it does. There's nothing wrong with that, to go tentatively humbly, graciously, and say, hey, you, you said this at the small group meeting. You said this at the youth, you know, the, the youth meeting. I'm concerned for you. And then ask some questions. What does it mean? Uh, what's going on in your heart? That's perfectly acceptable. That's not judging your brother. You're going directly to the person constructively to try to, try to help believers go forward. Now, of course, one of the problems with this is that when somebody comes to you and tries to do this to you, you get so defensive that the person concludes, well, I'll never do that again. We get defensive. We say, how dare you? You're judging me. Jesus said, judge not lest you be judged. That's not the situation if someone comes to you humbly, tentatively, in grace and mercy to say, hey, I'm concerned about you. And don't make it so hard on people if they do come to you. What James is talking about is something very different. He's saying that if you have a negative assessment of somebody, or even if you're concerned with somebody, you got to go to that person. But what's wrong, James says, is when you go to somebody else and speak evil against this other brother or sister in Christ, that's what James is concerned with. You go and give a negative assessment. And of course, we, we doctor this up and we make it very spiritual. You know, I just want to share you with a concern I have about Bill in our small group. And then you share it. You know, we should pray about it. Because you never pray about it. You just gossip about it. In other words, it's not helpful to the person who actually may be struggling with someone to stand from a distance and say, well, they've got a problem. Hey, what do you think about Bill over here? What do you think about Jane over here? And I'm not talking about Bill and Jane Van Zandt, sorry. I, I don't know why that came out of my mouth. I, I know nothing wrong with Bill and Jane. This is destructive. And when we get angry and frustrated, we often do this a lot more than we want to admit to. I mean, think about it. If you're talking to someone about this person's problem over here, and they're not in the room with you, how is that helpful to the person who actually may have an issue? How does that further the unity of the body of Christ? James says this is judging your brother or sister in Christ. This is not appropriate to give a, share a negative assessment, even if it's true, to someone other than the person who needs to be talked to. And yet I've grown up in the church. My dad was a pastor. I've seen this a hundred thousand times. And I've been involved in it myself. And James has strong words about that. He says the one who speaks against a brother or judges a brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. I mean, it's not simply that you're, you're, you're disobeying God's word. And, and I think James is referring here to the command to love one another from Leviticus. 
and not sharing tales about your neighbor. But not only are you disobeying the law, but you're actually judging the law. You're actually putting yourself up as the authority over the law. You're basically putting yourself in the place of God when you do that to your brother or sister in Christ. James says, there's only one lawgiver and judge. And, you know, if he was a little more obnoxious, he would say, there's only one lawgiver and judge, and it's not you. The one who was able to save and destroy, but who are you to judge your neighbor? I do want to thank a few people to try to help you understand what it is and what it's not. During COVID, we had 17,000 different ways we dealt with COVID. I was on the reopening team. We shut the whole church down for five months. We opened the church up, but we couldn't sing. We opened the church up, and we couldn't sing until the end of the service. Then we sang throughout the service. Then we took off mask at one service and then mask at the other service. And then we put everybody in a mask again. It, it, it was insane. But you know what I'm thankful about? There was a number of you who didn't love all of the decisions of the reopening team. And you know what? You sent us an email, or you picked up a phone, or you talked to me after the church, and you said, what in the world are you doing? Well, that, that, some of you said that, but you at least came to the people who needed to hear your complaints. On the other hand, I had a, a few other people come to me and say, this is what they said, I've talked to 27 people, they think the reopening team is crazy. What, what do you mean? You talked to 27 other people, now you're just coming to me? That's a violation of James 4. But I'm thankful for the people who came. Even the people who came and were pretty strong, and you're, you thought we made mind-bogglingly bad decisions, but you came to us. What we need to be, if we're going to be a community of followers of Jesus Christ, we ought to be a group of people that is having these kinds of conversations with one another, but appropriate conversations with the people who need to be talked to. Not having negative assessments given while the person who needs to hear this isn't even in the room. That is what James is concerned about. And just a little extra sort of understanding of this text. I, I remember hearing this very powerful sermon. I was, I was in high school at the time, and the preacher basically said, if you're a person who lots of people like to come to and complain about other people, and you think that they're coming to you because you're a mature person and they respect your wisdom, he said, don't, don't believe that for a moment. And then he went on to say this, no one dumps garbage on a clean lawn. And so if you find yourself to be the repository of a lot of negative things being said about other people who aren't in the room, it's not because you're mature. It's because you are a person who's given off the vibe. I got a lot of garbage I like to listen to and why don't you add to it? So this is the first scene we of all people, 
should talk to one another if we have an issue. Or even if we have a tentative issue, we should go to the person who needs to be talked to and no other negative assessments of anyone in this church ought to be shared unless you are sharing with the person who needs to hear it. That's the first scene. Let's look at the second scene, verse 13. And in this scene, what we see is, is that making plans without operating inside God's sovereignty is not going to accomplish God's will. In other words, making plans without operating inside God's sovereignty is not the way to accomplish God's plans. Notice we see this in verse 12. Come now, verse 13. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow, we're going to such and such a town, spend a year and trade and make a profit. What this is talking about is people who are a lot like us. Mid-Jersey people. You get things done. You make things happen. You've got plans. You've got vision. You've got a master plan for your life and maybe a master plan for lots of other people's lives. And you go out and try to accomplish all these plans. But guess what? God isn't even involved in any of that. You're not depending upon God to guide you in these plans. And you've forgotten how limited you are in terms of power. There's lots of things that can interrupt your plans, but you don't seem to see that. And James has to remind them, "Uh, uh, excuse me, you Princeton uh, planned out people. What is your life? You're a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. You are a very limited individual. You are one person in in a sea of billions of people. There's lots of obstacles to your great plans. Things can happen. You're not God. You're one person who is temporary on this planet. Act like it. And then he goes on to say, instead you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. Oh, there we go. In other words, you've got all these great plans. I think James would say, are, have you submitted those plans to God in any kind of prayerful uh, sort of interchange to even understand if those are the plans you ought to have? And B, do you have an acknowledgement that the plans you have made, if you prayed about it, to realize that God is sovereign and, and he may or may not allow those plans to be fulfilled exactly the way you want them to be fulfilled? And again, this is not just saying you need to tack on to every prayer, if God wills. No, yeah, that's superficial. It's a whole mindset. He's saying, are you living your life inside of God's sovereignty? Asking God what you should be doing, but then as you go out, if those goals are blocked, to trust God's good and sovereign plan for your life in spite of the block goals. I can't tell you how many people, believers I've talked to, who have, have shared with me that, that, that they had a, a major disappointment a few years ago. Maybe, maybe a series of disappointments in their career, in their love life. And things didn't happen the way they had wanted it to be. And they have never really dealt with God's sovereignty. They've never really accepted God's sovereignty. And to this day, they remain angry at God or depressed, which is a cold form of anger, that God didn't 
help them do the plans that they had worked so hard for. And their spiritual life is in deep trouble. It's interesting. I just read Walter Isaacson's biography of um, uh, Steve Jobs, the founder of Apple. There was a time in, in Steve Jobs' career when he was pushed out of Apple, even though he had founded it with his friend, Steve Wozniak. Uh, John Scully, the CEO, pushed him out. And he was not happy with it. He was angry. And it said it took him years to deal with that. Now, Steve Jobs, nowhere in the biography does he claim to follow Jesus. Right? If anything, he follows sort of Buddhism, if anything. But even Steve Jobs looked back at this situation. He was so angry about it. He thought this was the worst decision ever. And he, later in life, he could look back on it and say, it was the best thing that ever happened to him. And we, of all people, have a lot more reasons if we're rightly related to the God who made the universe and the God who is sovereignly enacting his plan to, to remake the world under the rule of God, and one day he will bring that to pass when he comes again, when Jesus comes again, we of all people should be able to handle disappointments, failures, uh, blocked goals, and say, if the Lord, the Lord didn't will it, and I trust him. And even if you can't see how this was a good thing in this life, I suspect in the next life you'll be shown how that disappointment, how that block goal, how that plan that didn't materialize, actually God was still working and was up to something good in your life. I think of Joseph in the Old Testament. Joseph had, a, you know, he had about 11, 12 brothers, depending on how you count it. He had these dreams that God gave him that he was going to be preeminent in the family. He made a mistake. He shared those dreams with his brothers. They were not amused. Joseph then is also favored by his dad. Massive dysfunctional family, the family of God, Jacob, favors him because Joseph's from his favored wife, Rachel, and the other boys, most of them are from Leah. The brothers get tired of him, and they sell him into slavery. He goes to Egypt. So much for the dreams. The brothers fake his death, and now he's forgotten by himself in Egypt. He's in, he ends up working for a man named Potiphar, and he kind of rises to the household manager, but then Potiphar's wife kind of sort of makes advances on him. Joseph does the right thing, refuses. She then accuses him of making advances, and he's in jail. There Joseph, ha having a dream from God that you'll be preeminent in the family, you, you, your brothers will follow after you, and now he's in jail. This was a recipe for him if he didn't hold on to God's sovereignty to get embittered, angry, depressed about God and his plans. And then as God would have it, he gets out of prison, he interprets one of Pharaoh's dreams, he ends up being second in command in Egypt, he saves the Egyptians and most of uh, the ancient Near East from famine, and his brothers come to Egypt to get food. He reveals himself to them, and when they find out that Joseph is now the number two guy in Egypt, after all that they did to him, they are scared for their lives. And what does Joseph say? You meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. That's holding on to God's sovereignty. One more item about this. 
sort of trusting God in your work. When I was in seminary, I had a, a job. Uh, I was mowing lawns, okay? Uh, now, that's not a complicated thing. You know, you turn on a lawnmower, you run it through the grass, you get a weed eater. It's not rocket science. Even me, with my bachelor's in history, was able to handle the job. I remember studying Psalm 127 that says, unless the Lord builds the house, the laborers labor in vain. Unless the, the, the Lord guards the city, the watchmen wait, you know, guard in vain. And I thought, this doesn't make sense to me. Unbelievers can build houses. Unbelievers can guard cities. What does this mean? And then I realized that unless you depend upon the Lord in every aspect of your life, whatever you're trying to do, yeah, you can build a physical house, but that house will never be effective to provide a, a place of peace and calm for your family. Oh, yeah, you can guard a city and maybe keep the invaders from coming in, but the city will never have shalom. It will never have peace. It will never have the kinds of security unless you depend upon the Lord. And so I was convicted by that. I was in seminary at the time, Psalm 27 is what I was studying, I was gonna preach a sermon on. It changed the whole way I approached my lawn mowing. And I started to get up about 30 minutes early and I prayed for my job mowing lawns. I know it sounds ridiculous. I asked God to help, I asked God to keep us safe, I asked God to give us skill. I mean, I, there's not that much skill in it, but I, I prayed for that. I prayed that I would deal with the, 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 our clients in a good way when they got frustrated and angry. I prayed that God would help us, and, 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 and it was just amazing. The, the reality is when I prayed, things still went badly wrong. There was a day I went over a hump in the road, and the spare tire of the truck with all the equipment in it, the spare tire came out, rolled, almost wiped out a few cars, rolled into a canal. I spent two hours trying to get the tire back in. It's bad. Lawnmower still broke, even though I prayed. Weed eaters broke. Some of the people we cut the lawns for were unreasonable and crazy. That didn't change. But I was different. Because I was depending on the Lord to help me in my work. And I viewed my work as the way, one of the little ways that God allowed me to manage a little bit of part of his universe by making these lawns look great. And I was depending on him every single step of the way. And I suspect for a number of you, some of you are gonna be going off to middle school tomorrow, elementary school, or high school, or go to university, you're doing grad work. Are, are you praying, depending upon God for every aspect of what you're gonna do that day? Or are you just kind of doing what the text says? I'm gonna spend the, you know, I'm gonna do this tomorrow and this tomorrow, I'm gonna get this done, and I got my to-do list, and I gotta get all this done. But you've never really taken that to God. You've never said whatever the Lord wills. Some of you need to be praying about you going into work tomorrow. Praying for every aspect of what God is calling you to do. Others of you need to pray for what you'll be doing at, at, at home. You're going to be watching kids. You're going to be uh, doing all kinds of projects around the house. Are we praying and embracing the sovereignty of God and approaching life inside the sovereignty of God? And that's scene number two. Very briefly, scene number three. This is a crushing indictment of wealthy, powerful, and abusive people. 
I don't think this is talking to believers per se. I think James is referring to the people that these believers are being persecuted. They're being abused by these wealthy, powerful people who are abusing them for their faith and abusing them economically. I don't think it's talking about believers. I also don't think this text is saying that if you have a lot of money, you are by definition a bad person. No. Please don't go out into the parking lot and if somebody has a nicer car than you, write on there, hey, James 5, 1 through 6 and put it on their windshield. It's crazy. Wealth by itself is not evil. It's a gift from God. But the misuse and abuse of wealth against people who are economically disadvantaged, well, that's what James is talking about. And this is brutal. He says, come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. In other words, riches are not going to save you from the judgment of God. Your riches have already rotted. Your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded. In other words, you have all this wealth. You're misusing it. You're abusing it. It's already being corroded even as you have this, these funds. It will eat your flesh like fire. Then he talks about, behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields. Lawnmowers, basically. Which you kept back by fraud. In other words, you didn't pay the, the, the appropriate amount of money that you agreed to. Well, guess what? They're crying out against you, and the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. James is trying to remind his followers of Jesus. I see what these wealthy, abusive people are doing to you. I notice, and they will not get away with it. And he goes on. You have lived on the earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. What James is trying to remind his hearers these wealthy people who are putting pressure on you, they're part of the trials you're experiencing. They're abusing you. They're, they're doing the wrong thing. They have power over you. Don't, don't wilt under their pressure because no, one day, absent Christ, they will be dealt with decisively. And remember, I think he's, he said throughout the book that if you're poor, you should rejoice in your exaltation because wealth or lack of wealth has no bearing on your relationship with God. You trust Jesus Christ as your Savior. You could have very little on this earth, but in the next life, you will be rich in every possible manner. And that's scene number three. I want us to prepare for communion. So if you could bow your heads. I'd like to ask the servers to come forward and, and, and have a seat. I think if we were honest about the text, we all have shared negative assessments of people. When the person we're negatively assessing is not in the room. I think we've all attempted to do things in our work, in our school, in our, all of our pursuits apart from depending upon the Lord and his sovereignty. We, and we often cannot understand when our goals are blocked that God is still sovereign and he's working good. And we sometimes despair of abusive, wealthy, powerful people who make life difficult, forgetting that their judgment is coming and our exaltation is assured. I want to encourage you to confess those sins, particularly as 
we prepare for communion, confess those sins, particularly during this, when the bread is passed out. I encourage you to confess the, your sins, to remind yourself that it's by grace you have been saved through faith. I want to invite anyone who has trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior to participate in communion today. Just take the bread, hold on to it, we will partake of it together. And in order to prepare us for communion, the uh, music team is going to lead us in worship. <laughs>